This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast discussing topics on the intersection of energy and finance. I'm your host, Hill Vaden, here today with Rob Smith, a director within our refining and marketing team. Rob, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me on, Hill. Yeah, gladly. So so you and I, uh, I, I guess, traded emails and traded conversations here what, two or three weeks ago um, after a report that you published on the downstream um, kind of retail stations within the refining uh, complex. And, and now we're um, I'm back after a couple of days or, or a week or so holiday. So so I hope I didn't miss too much, um, but, but this, our conversation will really be um, kind of based on a report that you released to clients called a mid-refining pullback, a fuel retail expansion. So I think, you know, just to kind of set the, uh, set the stage here for our listeners, we're going to be looking at the, the role of retail or what you know, p- people like me would call gas stations um, in, in kind of the, the, the downstream kind of company portfolio. What's been happening and, and where we see things going, because obviously gasoline or gas guzzlers, for, for lack of a better word, the demand has, uh, is changing and downstream firms are to reposition themselves. So, so maybe just to kind of anchor that, Rob, if you could explain how the retail or the gas station fits into a downstream company's overall portfolio and then kind of get out of the way any sort of jargon that we might introduce in our conversation here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fuel retail sector, uh, that part of the value chain is, you know, I mean, that's really the most visible part for the everyday person of the entire oil value chain, right? I mean, that's what you see when you think of a company, you think of Shell or BP or whatever you see on the gas station canopy nearby. And in some ways that that's an accurate place for them in the value chain for these companies too, because that's, especially in this country, but in any country really, what goes, what, what is produced by a refinery, what ultimately comes out of the wellhead the majority of it ultimately moves through a fuel retail station, right? So it does drive a lot of what what happens. For a lot of the companies that we're talking about, the global majors or for many refiners, their earnings they get out of the fuel retail space aren't as large as what they get out of the upstream or the refining space. But again, it's still kind of, it pulls everything up, right? That's what that's what drives oil production, what drives refinery margins. It ultimately comes down to final demand from the retail space. Um, and actually, just <laughs> while we're talking about it, I, I want to clarify that there can be a disconnect between what you see on the gas station pump, like if you're driving by and you see a Shell station or a BP station, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that, that, con- that that station is owned by a Shell or a BP. So we'll get into this a little bit later because there's a bit of a difference when we talk about, you know, downsizing a company's network or whether they're simply selling the sites to a franchisee who then carries on with the brand, right? Those are kind of two different topics and 
two different dynamics at play. But just to kind of set that uh, expectation right now. And so do we look at this really in the sense of brand awareness and access to market or access to end users if, if it's not a real revenue generator? For, or I, I should say income generator for, for the super majors or even the independent refineries? Yeah, I think that's a that's a good way to think about it too, especially now, right? I mean, if people think about the, you know, the whole oil value chain, especially, you know, with green sensitivity and more concern about, you know, these companies impact on the environment, you know, if you ask the average person, they'll think oil production or refineries, right? You see smokestacks and, you know, mm-hmm. deforestation and all these different kind of deleterious environmental impacts from upstream and from refining. They don't necessarily think about the gas station, their you know, neighborhood corner store the same way, even though, of course, right? I mean, they're selling a fuel that, that, that produces plenty of carbon emissions, but it is the kind of, to the extent they have one, right? It's the friendly face of, of these big, you know, oil majors right and and they know that right and they try to they try to emphasize that and it is brand awareness and as i said even if the overall margins can be quite low they're actually significantly more stable than for upstream or even refining right upstream margins can be very volatile for a company whereas retail fuel margins or wholesale fuel sale margins are far more stable and ultimately as you as you point out right it's a the biggest source of revenue for the companies one of the biggest sources of revenue so that's a very you know important like cash flow in for these for any you know big oil major when you talk about margins i mean what do you have kind of a general expectation um, across industry of the types of margins you're looking for and i imagine it differs by geography yeah it definitely does differ by geography and Fuel margins in this country, in, in the U.S., you know, and in fact, in a lot of developed countries where there's a kind of very open competitive fuel retail space. I mean, we're talking a couple cents per gallon or, you know, a couple cents per liter, same difference, really, depending on where you are. Very thin margins on the fuel sales. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a retail station operator, that's only half the business these days or sometimes even less than half the business, right? They're increasingly more reliant on other things inside inside the C store, inside the convenience store, or some of them have, you know, restaurant attached or all sorts of, you know, car washes, stuff like that. There's, there's lots of things that, that make much higher margins for them than fuel sales, even though a lot of it flows from the fuel sales anyway. Right. Sure. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's never, uh, I, I've walked into more than one gas station really for no reason, but because I don't want to stand there and pump the gas yep. in my car and yep. half the time I end up with a drink or a candy bar. Well, so, so, so one of the, the, the big takeaways from your uh, paper is, is really looking at the, the super majors and kind of the, their downsizing within the retail station market. And, and I think, you know, some of the numbers you quoted um, that, let's see, global major retail stations has declined by some 35%, I think, from over 100, around 150,000 uh, in 2005 to less than 100,000 now. Um, so, so what, um, you know, what, what's behind that trend? Why, why are uh, the, the super majors getting out? And I suppose in some respects, it's obvious that, that, that fuel demand is declining and therefore they want to reduce their footprint. Yeah, I mean, it is partly that, as you just mentioned, some of these a lot of the decline, this decline has been underway for you know over a decade, well before fuel demand, even in Europe or the U.S., started to, to decline. So that's part of it. To be honest, some of it is just kind of portfolio trimming. These companies, they're super majors. They were formed out of a variety of mergers and acquisitions in the late 90s and early 2000s, right? So 
when those sorts of things happen, they're left with a kind of very large portfolio of assets. There was also rationalization downsizing that occurred in the refining portfolios, even in the upstream. But as I mentioned, you know, the retail margins and even the refining margins are, aren't nearly as high. And particularly when, when you think about the, the capital employed, like if a lot of them kind of look at return on capital employed and other kind of ratios like that, retail is kind of the low-hanging fruit if you want to boost those ratios and kind of thereby help out things, you know, stock price and returns. So the retail sector was one of the ones that they looked at uh, first. And the, the same, and I guess one, one of the other points in here is that, um, and you touched on this in, in your introduction, that a lot of the, the, the branded stations that we see are sourcing fuel to other providers set to themselves. I think that the example you used with Shell in, in the paper, mm-hmm. um, but just because we see, I'm going to make up numbers, 10 Shell stations on a street, maybe less than 10 is actually sourcing Shell fuel. Yeah, I mean, that that dynamic is definitely becoming more common, especially in the U.S. Things are a bit more directly integrated outside of the U.S., uh, um, particularly in more developing nations. Those kind of vertical integration value chains are more important. But in the U.S., it's, it's yeah, it's become increasingly kind of convoluted, I guess. Um, like Shell, as an example, I think there's something on the order of 13 or 14,000 Shell stations in this country, in the U.S. A large chunk of them, maybe five or 6,000, are supplied by uh, Motiva, which used to be an affiliate of Shell, which used to be a joint venture of Shell's. But now Shell has no corporate stake in it. You know, several hundred others are supplied by Marathon, another big North American refiner. So essentially what what they, you know, that's just an, a supply arrangement that Shell has made. They kind of step back and truly their only involvement is just, you know, they're a franchiser for, for, for those gas stations. They have no involvement in the value chain, for the fuel that's sold, for the operation of the store. They just get, you know, kind of a, a franchise fee, either a per gallon basis or kind of a, a set term that the franchisee kind of negotiates with Shell. So who gets paid in that situation, I mean, in terms of the, you know, the, the margin we were talking about earlier, if Marathon gas is moving through a shell pump. So Marathon gets most of the margin, right? Or the, the supplier does, right? So in this case, Shell, um, I think the most common thing would be kind of a, a negotiated, you know, like one cent per gallon kickback to Shell, right? So that's that's a given for them no matter what, if however many gallons are sold through that station, that's what Shell gets out of it the margin would go to the supplier, right? So Marathon produces or procures the fuel and then it goes through the gas station and that that's the margin that, that Marathon or whoever the supplier in question would be, would be, would be getting. Okay. And then the, the actual footprint, the, the actual uh, real estate itself is owned by typically or, or even always someone else that, that I, I think Chevron and Exxon own none of their retail stations. Is that correct? Yeah, Chevron does own some still in this in the U.S. and um, most of the companies in question, the super majors, own more of their stations outside of the U.S. But within the U.S., uh, it's quite rare for the refiner to own the station, you know, even if it has their brand, right? So this is where things can get a little even more convoluted, right? So to take the example of a Shell station. Uh, or any, you know, just to, to keep it simple, and let's assume it's Shell supplying its 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 branded station. We think of the the fuel margin in two kind of parts. 
the first part would be the margin that Shell, the supplier, gets. And then the second part would be the margin that the site operator gets, right? So that could be, you know, 7-Eleven, another big company like Circle K, or it could be, you know, you or me, just one person that owns one gas station. I'm buying from Shell. I, I, I own the gas station and I'm Shell's customer. They're selling to me and then I sell to well, the drivers, right? So the margin is kind of split up in that way. But as a site operator, I'm also getting all of the margin on the inside of the store, right? From the, the Cokes or uh, beer sales or cigarettes or lottery tickets mm-hmm. or anything else that gets sold. That's me as a site operator. Shell, the supplier, doesn't get any get any of that, right? So they're, they're a lot more hands-off in terms of the, uh, the fuel retail space than they used to be. So how, I mean, if, if we're looking at this in terms of, you know, the, the energy transition, which is kind of the, the, the word du jour of, uh, you know, the, the current kind of environment here for, for, for those of us sitting in, in energy research or energy analysis type roles, you know, there, there would seem to be a lot of value in kind of retail stations themselves because they are near to where people are traveling, near to where people are hanging out, and we'll keep picking on Shell and Shell, if, if there are any of you Shell listeners out here, if we, if we just happen to grab your name out of a hat. So, you know, if, if there's a bunch of Shell stations owned by Robin Hill, the, the, the gas station franchise folks, you and I could do things with that um, and, and maybe to a benefit, but how is Shell or, or Exxon or whomever looking at these stations today as gas demand starts to change with the rise of electric vehicles and other things? Yeah. So first of all, the energy transition, kind of the inevitable decline in gasoline or diesel demand, you know, like it's already, we we believe that gasoline demand has already peaked in the U.S. And even if we're a bit off and it continues to go up, of course, it will inevitably go down, as it will in every market. So the kind of traditional MO of a a fuel station is going to have to change or they're going to have to rationalize, right? There's going to have to be, both things are going to happen, of course, but when kind of fuel demand declines, they're going to have to turn to other sources of revenue. And, um, you know, that whether that means installing EV chargers or just getting a more sophisticated convenience store offering, you know, building a restaurant nearby or something like that. Those are kind of alternate sources of revenue. But as I mentioned, that would only help out the guy that owns the station, right. finer. That doesn't help me out. So what do I get out of the deal? Why do I care about branded fuel retail? Um, the answer is because if I'm producing gas, you know, I'm a refiner. That's what I do. I'm producing gasoline and diesel. I have to sell it. And then, I mean, that's the point. You sell it, <laughs> and I can either sell it to a gas station that's my own brand, right? And again, to use Shell, if I'm selling it through that method, oftentimes I get a slightly higher margin because it's you know the Shell shell brand right like it's you know you can you can eke out a couple more cents just based on kind of the brand premium but more importantly i think for these companies especially as overall fuel demand declines that that kind of sale is more rateable because when i have that i have like a a 10-year supply contract set up they're finer with their own branded stations right if i have if i'm my franchisee to use that word right if i'm selling to gas stations that are utilizing my brand they do so because they've signed a contract, right? You know, for 10, 15, or even 20 years sometimes. And those contracts are often, you know, like a take or pay contract, right? Mm-hmm. I'm agreeing to buy 100,000 gallons per month from Shell or whoever, 
put another way, I'm agreeing to pay for 100,000 gallons per month from you, no matter what, right? So it's kind of a seller. Right. Um, but if you're not, if you don't have that, you're just kind of selling to whoever, right? You're kind of more on a spot basis or oftentimes lower margin, less predictable, right? A lot of these big companies, what they like is that predictability, right? Kind of the the rateability and, and secure secure demand outlet. Like we always we, we like to say that having that branded fuel outlet, it kind of pulls volumes through your refining system. Okay. Whereas if you don't, you're just trying to push volumes out, right? So you'd rather have them being pulled by a secure source, right? So that's that's one of the reasons why um, the value to 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 the supplier. So, and I, I sent you a picture earlier uh, on a, a station that that is here in Houston where they have rebranded themselves, I think, Charge Up or something like that. And they have put what appears to be a battery over the pricing for uh, unleaded fuel. It's not clear to me, you know, who, who the actual source of that fuel is, but, but there is no, that there's no place to charge an electric car um, at this uh, gas station. But they've tried to, you know, I guess, capitalize on, on the move to um, electric vehicle you know, driving by, by, by others. And it's, it's, it, that, that is, a, I would say a laughable example. It's laughable enough for me to walk across the street and send them road and take a picture of it. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, the, the more serious example, the more interesting example in, in your paper, uh, again, you know, I, I think looked at Shell, which has what, 75,000 or something charging stations in, in its global portfolio, most of which are not co-located at it's retail fuel stations, right? Yes. Yeah. I think they have about, of those 75,000, they state that only about 4,500 are at their kind of gas station, right? A gas sta- at a fuel station, right? Um, and that's going to be, I mean, that truly is going to be um, a bit of a challenge for for gas stations to, I guess, fully capture or fully replace volumes that they might lose in terms of traditional fuel sales with EV charging, right? It's just, I mean, a far more natural place to do EV charging is either at the home or the office, places that you're gonna be for a while anyway. And then another close close second or third, I guess, would be, you know, at a grocery store or just a public parking, like next to the movie theater or out, you know, city hall or wherever, right? Places, again, that you're going to be for a while because it takes a while to charge a car, right? Even, you know, a fast charger today is about 30 minutes for a full charge. And sure, that could improve some. Say it gets down to 15 minutes. That's not a given. But let's just say that. When is the last time you spent 15 minutes, right? You know, sometimes, you know, you go to fill up your car and I'll go in to get something and I'll see a line. It's like, that's going to take me five minutes if I wait in that line. I'll say, no, thanks. I'll, I'll just, you know, wait till I get home or something. Um, so it just kind of even a 15 minute charge, which again, is not where we're at today. That doesn't really align with the whole kind of business model of a convenience store, right? It's kind of in and out. But certainly there's going to be some exceptions, right? I mean, if you're on a cross-country road trip, you know, those kind of highway stations are more, you know, suitable, I guess you could say, for an EV charging point, because in that scenario, you're probably almost looking to get out of the car for a bit and kind of stretch your legs for a longer period. You also don't have many other options if you're doing a cross-country trip, right? If you have an EV car, right, you've got to charge it. Right. So it's a challenge, and it's not 
it also one other thing to think about too, given those charging times. Like let's let's even go with today's technology. Thirty minutes for a fast charge. If I have two EV, if I have two charging points at my station, I can do four customers in one hour, right? Thirty minutes. Right. Whereas if I have two gas station pump, gas pumps at my my station, I can do, you know, at least thirty customers, right? How long does it take? Let's say it's four or five minutes to to fill up. You know, it's so there's just, you know, even if everyone was willing to wait as a customer, as a supplier of the fuel or, you know, as a, as a seller of EV um, charges, you're never going to be a one for one replacements, you know, even ignoring the customer side. So EV charging is going to be it's a way that they these gas station chains can help offset some of the losses that they might experience in terms of you know gasoline sales declining or whatever but it's never going to be the full answer it's only part of it and it almost seems like there's a uh, almost a completely different perspective or outlook that, that maybe i'm looking at it as a very similar business as a driver but from a energy provider they're two very different things and and i just slide but uh, you, you mentioned the uh movie theaters is potentially a good place for, for energy uh, for electric vehicles, which is, you know, a bit hard to, to fathom t t today. Right. But, you know, I, I think that the, the point that, that you make is a good one, that those kind of longer term destinations, um, you know, I, I think I heard years ago um, that, that IKEA was looking at doing something, you know, because it, it's the very definition of a captive customer is, you know, once you get them in and you're charging your car, you've got them in your store for, you know, 30 minutes or 15 minutes, to use your example. Are, are these downstream players looking at these as two very distinct strategies, one for fuel retail and convenience and one for electric vehicle um, with more of a sustained commitment and maybe, you know, rather than you know, I think the grocery store where you've already seen fuel, you know, that you, you could check the box there as being, yes, this makes sense for both. But there might be other things, you know, whether it be hotels or, you know, other retailers that, that these, what, what today are calling themselves energy companies need to start looking at. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that any refiner, any oil company that is looking at EV is thinking about it as a, I mean, not as part of their existing retail fuel space, right? I mean, there's going to be some installed, again, to use our favorite topic, to use our favorite company here, Shell, 75,000 charge points today, 4,500 are at their gas stations, um, existing gas stations. You know, they say they want, their, their target is to have 500,000 charge points by 2025. So, and you know, most of, I mean, obviously most of those, the vast, mass majority, I mean, you could say like five to 10% might be at their, their gas stations, their existing fuel network. But they're thinking about the EV space, the charging space as, um, you know, like Shell also produces electricity, right? So it goes hand in hand with their, with that side of their business. So it's almost like a, it is a separate side of it, right? Most of them these days kind of lump them together, you know, in their internal like segments, mm -hmm. right? Be something like fuels and mobility. And some of that's just clever branding, right? They don't want to be, you know, an oil company or even energy company anymore. It's it's a mobility company, mobility. right? They're trying to trying to focus on that side of it. Um, but I think that's a that's probably a smart way to think about it, right? Because <clears throat> gasoline and diesel demand are are going to decline. 
but people aren't going to stop moving around any less, right? I mean, right. ultimately, gasoline and diesel is the means to an end, right? It's a means to mobility, and that's not going anywhere. People will still drive places. People will still fly. So truly, if these companies want to survive or even let alone thrive, they need to accept and understand and figure out a way to um, to continue supplying that mobility, right? And, and I think we're, we're we're seeing that particularly within the super majors, um, with you know the, the, the some of the brands that, that we've mentioned, you know, but by name that, that they are really embracing that energy company, uh, and in a sense, you know, naming or branding. Are the more independent or, or the pure play refiners uh, or downstream companies are, are they having to approach it a little bit differently? You know, they're all they're all certainly any publicly traded companies. Is at least paying lip service to it these days, right? There's clear, clear preference from investors and clear preference from shareholders that this is what uh, this is what they want. It's perhaps not surprising, but the companies, be they super majors or kind of smaller independent refiners, the companies that are most kind of embracing that or kind of walking down that path are the ones based in Europe, right? So I mean, mm-hmm. among the super majors, BP, Shell, and Total which is now going by Total Energies these days, again, focusing on that, are by far the most kind of, I want to say doing the most, I think that's probably true, but they're certainly the ones that are talking the most about what they're doing in the green space. But then you also have independent refiners based in Europe, like Repsol, which is a Spanish refiner, ENI, which is Italian, and even other ones like in Eastern Europe, they're the ones that are focusing as much on EVs, if not more, focusing on that mobility transition as are any super majors. But even even the ones based in the US, right? Like ExxonMobil and Chevron, they they know that they know they know the writings in the wall, right? I mean, they're mm-hmm. Exxon's a hundred year old company, right? They've been through quite a few transitions themselves. And this is, you know, it's not quite the same as some other transitions, but ultimately that's that's the way they have to think about it. And um um, yeah, I, I would say, you know, each has a different nuance to it, right? Like some of the ones in that are more North America focused independent refiners like Marathon or Valero, their kind of emphasis is less on EVs. It's more on renewables, right? And again, that to some extent that reflects their portfolios. Both of those companies have ethanol plants or biodiesel facilities that they produce at their at the refineries, right? So they're they're kind of in their presentations and their talking points are more well, it's really more about renewables. That's going to be the wave of the future, um, which isn't wrong per se, but um, they just don't have as much focus on electrification. And would they, would some of these, uh, you know, more renewable or biofuel kind of focused, uh, I guess, you know, refiners or companies, would they be, if, if super majors are kind of re- reducing their retail footprint or are these folks expanding their re- retail footprint? Well, uh, some of them are and some of them aren't. <laughs> so it, it it does kind of depend. Um, and I actually wanted to point out something. We we kind of, the, the premise of my paper, as, as you know, was how there has been a major downsizing of the retail portfolios of these mm-hmm. super majors. But kind of the, the kicker at the end was that that's changed over the past couple of years, right? Most of them are looking to expand their networks. Uh, you know, I think the past two years or now three, if we include 2020 in the mix, have seen an expansion 
by these super majors in terms of their portfolio of retail fuel stations for the reasons we actually already touched on right it's a you know as we move towards that energy transition it's a it's a secure rateable source of demand for their portfolios the same is true for some of these independent companies some of the smaller refiners be they european or or America or Latin America, wherever, some of them are looking to expand. Others are kind of pulling back and focusing just on on refining. But um, and there's you know a variety of reasons for that. We'll get in them all here. But which is a I mean it's kind of a real head scratcher. And I guess what we've got a couple of years of data to, to to show the expansion. You know within the larger context of you know several years of contraction. Where do you see things going if, you know, what we're sitting here, you know, the, the, the first, second week in August um, and, you know, all of the, you know, headlines today are, um, you know, around, you know, there's a report yesterday on climate change being, you know, much more of an urgent matter than many perhaps realize. How how should we view retail? And, and let's start with gas stations, but before we think about retail in terms of energy, but but how should we view retail in the portfolio of integrated energy companies uh, going forward? I think we're, I mean, I think we'll continue to see overall, right? You know, you'll have some exceptions, but certainly the, the trend will be towards increasing emphasis. Like I think the fuel retail space will have a greater and greater role to play in these companies. And you mentioned like climate as an issue. Um, well, if you think of, I mean, and I, and I mentioned initially that the earnings, the margin from the fuel retail space are lower than those from refining or from upstream from oil production but when you start to throw in kind of carbon emissions mm-hmm. factor that in there's a carbon penalty like a price on carbon emissions the emissions intensity of fuel retail is obviously almost nothing right there's obviously you know they're selling a product that's what's you know known as like tier three emissions so it's right. the emissions accounted for by the burning of the fuel in the car or whatever but that's really not kind of fair to put that on the the fuel retail space and in fact they're not but you know the operation of a fuel retail gas station whatever there's almost no emissions compared to you know a refinery or producing oil so when they start to factor that in that kind of changes the calculus a little bit also, the fuel retail space provides an opportunity to kind of kind of sidestep that, right? I mean, if the energy transition is is basically about the decline in demand for oil and oil products, there's really not much you can do to avoid that or kind of leverage that in the upstream space. That's all you do. You produce oil. Right. Refiner, all you do is produce refined products. In the fuel retail space, you can pivot to some extent away from that. When we're talking about EV chargers, I downplay that a little bit, but that's a way. It does help offset things. Focusing on selling uh, convenience store items or all sorts of other kind of innovative things they can do in that space, right? Because people will still need mobility. People will still need to buy, you know, Cokes or beer or or whatever else they want to get at at a gas station, right? Or, you know, you can develop more sophisticated offerings, right? Plenty of gas stations in the U.S. are kind of successful, like renowned, because they have good food or a massive kind of convenience store offering, right? Lots of stuff to right. buy. And in vast swaths of this country, right, in, in other countries as well, that convenience store occupies a pretty central role in a community, right? If you live, my, my wife grew up in western Nebraska and, you know, there wasn't a, a proper grocery store nearby. I mean, you had to drive 
bit to get there, but there was a gas station. There was a convenience store, right? So those sorts of things um, kind of occupy a central place and that's not going anywhere. So I spent much of my uh, high school years at the stop in. I don't know who owns stop in or even if they're still around, but we would go to stop in on Friday and Saturday night. It would be full of teenagers looking for some place to go. We ended up going nowhere until the manager would kick us out. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying that this is, um, you know, this the fuel retail space offers kind of one of the only ways to kind of pivot to kind of ride the energy transition rather than, you know, have it buried, right? To have it kind of like take away from your your business. So where do you see, I mean, if we're thinking about it from an investor's perspective, you know, that, that I'm, I, I guess that, that there seem to be a couple different plays here, um, whether investors being outside investors or the companies themselves, the, um, the super majors themselves making investments in, into retail. You know, I, I guess that, that one can, um, you know, transition and look to sell renewables fuels uh, to, to, to biofuels and, and that process. Is that going to be a high call on CapEx to, to, to retrofit if, if you and I have a gas station? Do, do, do we have a lot of money to put into that? Um, and then I guess, you know, a second question with that. Given the fragmented ownership of a lot of this, you know, kind of mom and pop stores where they're selling the fuel of others, do you see a consolidation and companies coming in and buying, buying out the, the the retail footprint of Robin Hill? Yeah, it's so. The first question, the the answer is that it is. That's actually a very tricky thing. As a retail station, you know that you know gasoline demand might be going down, or will you know that it will be going down? You might not know exactly how fast, but you know it's going to be going down. What you don't know is, oh, should I focus on maybe uh, putting EV chargers in? How many? When? Mm -hmm. uh, should I do more ethanol sales? Like, should I try to sell E15, which is a 15% ethanol blend? Should I put a CNG, right, a, a natural gas pump in, right? There's lots of different options. And what makes it tricky is that so much of that depends on policy, right? It's government policy, right? There's so it's kind of an impossible thing to predict, right? Um, you kind of know overall the which way the winds are blowing, I guess, but you don't know how fast and kind of what exactly is the best option. So it does become tricky. Um, and as far as kind of investment goes, there is there is investment still flowing into into the space, right? Because the overall site count might be declining in this country. But as I mentioned, there are kind of growth segments within that space. If you think about convenience store sales, right? Sales of things other than fuel by the gas mm -hmm. station. That has gone up every single year for the past 20 years, including last year. Fuel sales in this country were down 14%, but convenience store sales were up. So it's pretty, it's, it's, and it, it's powered through it. Before this, it had powered through recessions, high gas prices, and now it's powered through a pandemic, right? It's just, it is a growth sector. Obviously, as fuel demand starts to decline, that'll be a headwind for that yeah. space. But there's growth there. There's growth in EVs. There's growth in alternative fuels. So there's investment going into it. Um, and to use your, you know, you mentioned, you know, our fictional gas station company that we own. 
we're the ones that are going to be struggling to, to ride that energy transition wave because the things we just talked about require a lot of capital, right? You have to install EV chargers, or I want to make my C-store bigger and better to, to capitalize on that trend or, you know, a CNG charger or anything like that. Um, it requires capital, and that means advantage big companies. Um, mm -hmm. And in fact, you've seen that, actually. A lot of these smaller gas station chains, uh, family business that owns, you know, 12 sites or, you know, even 50, right? That's a decent size, but overall, it's not that big. And they're being snapped up by both established chains like uh, like Circle K or 7-Eleven mm -hmm. or Casey's, to use another good Midwestern company, uh, or, or newer kind of purpose-built acquisition vehicles which are often backed by by private equity or, or investment companies. They're kind of they've been some of the most aggressive growth-oriented companies through these through these acquisitions of smaller chains. And a lot of times, you know, as I said, they're family-run businesses, and um, you know, dad wants to retire, and, and none of the none of the kids want to take up the mantle. So, you know, that that happens in a lot of sectors. But the U.S. fuel space is kind of primed for it. It's a prime candidate because it is so, so fragmented with so many stations that kind of fall into that category. Is it fragmented to the point of there being, you know, we'll keep picking on ourselves here, uh, you know, Robin Hill have this station and John and Sue have that station. I mean, is it a bunch of, you know, single owner properties or is it less fragmented that maybe than we realize or than I realize where you've got dozens of stations owned by Robin Hill and dozens of stations owned by and so if I were to come and say hey I'm going to put a bunch of money into retail I've got to call seven people or seven organizations rather than I've got to call 7,000 organizations yeah I suspect it is more fragmented than than you or most people would expect it's something on the order of like 55 or 60 percent of stations are owned by a single person right like so mm -hmm. 60% of stations have a single site operator, right? So 60,000 60, stations have 60,000 owners, right? To use that example. And then another 10 to 12% or something on that order, 10 to 12% of sites are owned by entities that have no more than 50 sites per, right? So, you know, a big company like 7-Eleven now owns, since they purchased Speedway, they own something around eight or 9,000 fuel stations in this country. But those big companies, and then you have a couple others that own several thousand, but it gets very fragmented very fast after that. You know, thousands of single site operators, hundreds of, <clears throat> of family businesses or small entities that own, you know, 12 sites, 20 sites. Yeah, so consolidation is happening for the reasons we were just describing, but it can go slow because there's not any single one move that will, that will really move the needle. Oh, yeah. Well, so, so so as you know, as a last question, I guess you know, if if we are, um, you know, if we if we continue to look forward here, where do you see kind of the, the the most likely opportunity as kind of retail evolves from the perspective of a super major? Do, do you see, um, you know, in, in a sense, kind of a, a divorce strategy where you've got the fuel, um, you know, decisions around the fuel and then decisions around electric vehicles? Um, or do you see them, you know, in that larger mobility context? And could we see something where, you know, these energy companies start partnering or even taking ownership of longer duration 
convenience locations. And, and I'm thinking, you know, hotels rather than, uh, you know, Coke shops. Yeah, I think the companies right now are looking at EVs as a primary of certainly the thing they're emphasizing the most. And I don't think that's wrong. Um, there's, I think, a lot, you know, IHS is certainly predicting significant growth among electric vehicles, size of electric vehicle fleet. And as we mentioned, you know, I think a large number of those station or those charging points won't be at fuel sites, existing fuel sites. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of charging that will occur today, tomorrow, 10 years in the line, won't be at fuel sites. But no matter, right? The, the the companies themselves are are still looking to acquire and build charge points, right? They want to be that, you know, they see that as an opportunity, and of course it is. What does that mean for their existing fuel stations? We use this term for 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 refining space, but also for retail now. Uh, it's kind of rationalize or reinvent. Um, so either your fuel demand's declining, so that either means you're kind of rationalizing sites are being closed or you have to reinvent and figure out a way to kind of, again, ride the energy transition. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's never, it's not an either or, right? Both are going to happen, right? There are, sites are closing in this country and in, in many others, but others are not. Others are, you know, this, there's thriving companies, right? That focus on retail. I mentioned 7-Eleven just purchased Speedway to become the largest fuel retailer by by site count in this country. And they've set a target to keep going, right? They're, they clearly see this as a, as a business opportunity. A lot of these big companies that own that own sites are adding, they're building new sites um, every day, every week. And I mentioned private equity companies and other financial players are, are buying up retail chains that are, you know, they're not continuing, right? So I think overall the um, there's opportunity in the space, even within the existing fuel retail space. Mm -hmm. But that fuel retail station will look very different in the future, right? Just real quickly, kind of the, the things that the kind of are positives are kind of, I guess, the station type that is more immune to the ongoing kind of energy transition, stations that are more rural and or located along highways and or that have a very strong convenience station offering, right? Kind of that can sell non-fuel items that have a very large, uh, sophisticated non-fuel offering. Because those are kind of the subsectors within fuel retail that still have growth potential and kind of immune to the traditional demand declines. Well, you would think also, and maybe this is, you know, all on point with the convenience piece, but in even in urban areas, but, but in, in the urban areas where people aren't buying Teslas um, because, you know, perhaps a lower income, um, more denser communities where, you know, people are going to be driving gas cars for longer than people who are able to make a purchase yeah. of a much more expensive vehicle. So you can see a, potentially a real shift in some of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, good. This has been uh, interesting uh, to, to me and I'm sure to, to, to the listeners as well. So, so thank you, Rob, for, for joining and hopefully we can uh, have you back another time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. 
You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.